here at Allen's, they want you to learn and they want you to enjoy yourself. Go for it and keep your mind open. But a mentality of celebrating difference. Pro bono is a really important element. The work we do towards reconciliation, sustainability and philanthropy. Got off the train and I was like Elle Woods arriving at Harvard. I was just like, <laughs> this is my moment. If you have a smile on your face and you're willing to get stuck in and apply yourself, then you'll bring so much value. This is Alan's Confidential. This episode of Alan's Confidential is produced on the lands of the Gadigal people. We recognise the traditional owners' continuing connection to lands, waters and culture and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples joining us today. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Alan's Confidential. Uh, my name is Will. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined by the wonderful Caitlin, as always. So you may not know that October is Mental Health Month in Australia, and we know that the legal industry sometimes has a reputation of being a challenging industry for well-being. So on this episode, we want to dive into some of those issues, what firms are doing and what they can do about it. On today's episode, we're joined by Greg Prescott, who is the consulting psychologist at Allen's. Welcome, Greg. Thank you very much, Will. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. So, Greg, one of our our uh, old traditions on the podcast is to talk about what you've been listening to, whether you listen to any podcasts, or maybe you've had some, uh, you know, guilty pleasure TV shows during the lockdown period, which is thankfully now over in Sydney. Greg, are you a big podcast listener or what content have you been consuming um, to keep your spirits up in this difficult time? I used to be a podcast listener, but I now have a three-year-old and an eight-month-old. So my main music that I listen to at the moment tends to be um, Louis theme songs and Peppa Pig. But <laughs> during lockdown, I did finally, and this this is old, but I finally got to watch The West Wing beginning to end, which uh, I missed when it first aired. And it was fantastic to have actually not watched it and have something good to watch during lockdown. This is really come full circle because on my very first podcast episode as host, I said that I had just watched The West Wing in its entirety during the last <laughs> lockdown. So perfect guess, Greg. You could not have given a better answer. So a <laughs> big tick from me. Greg, I have to go back a step um, and perhaps this is more indicative of my mental age, but you spoke of Bluey as well. And um, I'm interested. I hear that it's a really, really amazing television show. I don't actually actively have an excuse to watch it because I have no minors in my household yet. But um, is it true what they say? Is it, is it a very um, a progressive, wonderful, beautiful piece of children's television? And can you get on board with it? Yeah, if I could, of, of every children's TV show I've watched, that's the one that I would recommend 100% the highest in terms of portraying a healthy family dynamic. I mean, the biggest problem I have with it is that there's no way that I can possibly live up to the lofty standards set by the dad <laughs> in the show. So kind of makes me feel guilty every single time I watch it. But other than that, it's really well done in terms of interactions, normalizing emotions, dynamics, that kind of thing. A lot of kids shows miss out on that to go for a cheap laugh. Louie just seems to manage to be funny, but wholesome at the same time, which is nice. Wow. I, that, was, that, that answer exceeded my expectations. That is so interesting to hear from your, your expertise and your, your lens that it, it, is, um, it, it does play up to the hype and, and how cool that it, it portrays um, emotions in, and family dynamics in such a healthy way. I have to keep that in mind for, um, for the future if I do, I could do go down that track. <laughs> or maybe I just watch it myself. 
Um, so maybe onto the more formal side of things. Uh, so you're a consulting psychologist at Allen's. So for those at home who might not know what that means, who might have no you know, engagement with the mental health space or, or don't know that firms are starting to recruit in-house mental health support, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as a psychologist at Allen's and, and what your role involves? Yeah, I mean, my role has a I guess it's quite wide ranging and because it is a brand new role, not just to Allen's, but to law firms in general, part of it was prescriptive and part of it is kind of for me to find my own way as I go through this. So one of the core parts of my role, one of the things that has become a core part of my role is delivering weekly wellbeing sessions firm-wide. And I deliver two per week. I deliver one firm-wide and one for leaders. And those were never actually a part of the plan when I first joined. But as Sydney and Melbourne then re-entered lockdowns, we kind of realised it's actually a really important thing to get to, to get going right now. Um, so that's become probably the most common contact point that most of the staff have had with me. Um, beyond that, I provide a lot of advice to leaders and P&D in terms of handling people issues whether that's employees who are in distress or challenging interactions, conflict, those kind of things. Uh, I'm also available for one-on-one -on -one support for urgent cases, and I also deliver one-on-one -on -one support to partners. And beyond that, in the background, I'm also currently developing longer format training sessions, which are going to be rolled out um, to various parts of the firms. The one I'm focused on at the moment is on vicarious trauma, which will um, focus on helping lawyers be able to interact with people who are traumatized, which will be rolled out primarily to the pro bono team, but then also how do you deal with exposure to potentially traumatizing material? Great example um, that we see there is often royal commissions uh, where you might be exposed to a huge volume of traumatizing material. How do we protect ourselves from that? Wow, that's um, it, it's such a broad set of uh, roles and and jobs within the one title. Um, I, I had no idea that, you know, you, your work spanned that that wide. It, it's a new role at this firm, at least. Can you tell us a bit about how you're bringing your your previous experiences and and your career this far to this role and and all of those different things that you've just mentioned? Yeah, so prior to being um, at Allen's, I was the state manager of uh, Allen's current EAP provider, Assure. Um, and in that capacity, I did a lot of consulting across most of the big law firms in Australia, including Allen's, as well as all of the big four professional services firms. So I've done a lot of work uh, as an external consultant on, so I know the industry well, I know the stressors. Typically in those roles, I would be brought in to fix a specific problem. So come in, put out the fire, patch it all up and then go again. So I'm bringing that knowledge of what the stressors and the pressures are across the industry. But from an internal perspective, I'm now able to look at the medium and long-term picture. So really trying to get proactive about it and think about how we're going to lay out not just this one problem, but the next month, the next year, the next five years. I want to come back to uh, the topic of particular stresses in the industry, because I do think that, as I'm sure law students are aware, that there are particular challenges in the legal industry. Um, but you mentioned an EAP, which for people listening at home is an employee assistance program. Allen's provides that service. Many companies are increasingly providing it. Could you tell us, for, for people who aren't familiar with those, what 
an EAP is and maybe, you know, how your role as an in-house, you know, consulting psychologist differs or what sort of differences you're bringing in addition to the EAP? Yeah, so the EAP service is available as a private and confidential external service for all employees and their family members. So any member of Allen's or an immediate family member can call up and speak to a psychologist and they can talk about any work-related or personal issue they may like. It's totally confidential. And, you know, we at Allen's find out nothing about that. Um, so that's really there for the individual one-on-one support for people. My role internally is really uh, looking at sort of, I guess, the, the broader picture, you know, running those training programs for teams firm-wide and looking at policy, procedure, um, providing leadership advice. So although I do provide some one-on-one support internally, that's probably the smallest part of the role that I deliver. So I'm by no means there to replace the EAP service. It's still absolutely the go-to for people for that one-on-one support. Yeah, definitely. Um, and about you know, the the challenges in that legal industry. I know you've mentioned that you've worked in a variety of contexts before coming uh, to this role at Allen's. In your view, and and Caitlin, I'd be interested in your views as well, is is the legal industry, you know, different in any other way from the other professional services providers you've worked with or other industries? Are there any particular challenges you see in the legal industry for, you know, mental ill health and and mental wellbeing? Yeah, and... I mean, it's unfortunate, but law is one of the professions that has one of the highest rates of mental illness. Uh, If you look at lifetime prevalence of depression amongst lawyers and barristers, it sits at around about 50%, which is enormous. The question of why, um, it's a variety of factors. One of the factors is the types of people who become attracted to law. We see people who are typically high achieving. Um, They're mildly to highly perfectionistic. And they have typically gone through most of their life being very successful and driven towards what they do, you know, sort of achieve, you know, top couple of percentile the whole way through. And when you join a firm like Allen, suddenly you're no longer the top couple of percent. You're actually amongst everyone who is the top couple of percent. So it's a huge culture shock to a lot of people to suddenly have that. There's the obvious workload that comes with being a lawyer. You've got the type of work you're potentially exposed to um, and constantly having to assess things. And it's actually positive or it's helpful for lawyers to have a mildly pessimistic view of the world because it helps you reality test every piece of information that comes in. It makes you good at critiquing things, which is a core skill. But outside of work, having a mildly pessimistic view of things is actually really detrimental <laughs> to your well-being. So <laughs> yeah. one of the biggest challenges for a lawyer, if you want to maintain that well-being, is to bring that critical, mildly pessimistic eye to your work. And then when you step out of it, to be able to switch and go, you know what, this isn't work anymore. That's a, a really interesting point. Um, I, I personally noticed this, I think, when I started um, as a grad at Allen's and I was wondering if it, if it was just me and it took me a while to realise that it might actually be linked. Um, I had this kind of shift in mindset that I was noticing outside of work and it wasn't overwhelming or anything, but just bit by bit, I noticed that I was being kind of a lot more sceptical, critical, um, potentially anxious about things around me outside of work that I had not previously been at all. 
And I was speaking to a few friends about this who also work in law and, and they kind of had come to a similar conclusion that when your brain is being trained to look for risk and to look for, um, you know, a, any possible danger or, or downside or gap or hole, it, it can take some time to teach yourself how to step out of that when you leave the office. And um, I wonder if, it, do, you, do you have any strategies that you, you would, recommend that, that people employ to kind of split that brain between being the, the pessimistic lawyer that, that is certainly helpful for what we do and, and then switching back to a more balanced worldview when you step outside. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I developed, you know, in my previous role, I worked a lot with um, New South Wales Police and they struggle in exactly the same way because when they're at work, they get exposed to people who are having the worst five percent of their life that you know you don't get good news calls as a police officer and then when you go back home trying not to see just the world as the worst five percent of things happening it's all about how you create boundaries and ways to switch off and separate your work and your personal life and this is one of the things where the pandemic working from home are actually quite a challenge toward that because if you do your work in the office and then come home and have a clear boundary of I'm not going to do any work here, it's pretty easy to set those differentiations. But that's not the way that things look now. And honestly, that's probably not the way that most workplaces are ever going to look again. So we need to build in protective factors to actively switch our brains from work to home. It's not just enough to stand up, close your laptop and walk into the other room because our brains don't switch tasks that quickly. So, that, yeah. so that's one of the focuses of my training with the Nallans is helping teach all of the lawyers how do you switch off at the end of the day and leave work at work. Yeah, I I know I find that difficult. And 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 Greg, I don't, I don't know if you've experienced this in the kind of the one-on-one stuff that you've done, but I feel like a lot of people when they hear some of these tips like you need to switch off feel like they're too rational for those experiences you're like oh of course you know like when work ends i end and don't realize that you know their brain is changing or realize that you know the attitude is becoming increasingly cynical is is that something you've experienced with lawyers in that they think you know in some cases they're trained to be so rational and logical that maybe they're reluctant to accepting you know some of the things you've learned from psychology about how our brains work. Is that something you've experienced in your practice? Probably not too much. That being said, I would be seeing a skewed um, uh, percentage of people because only the ones who are actually interested would be coming to see me. <laughs> yeah, of but, course. but that is one of the reasons why when I run my sessions, I talk a lot about the neuroscience behind it because it's, you know, I don't want people to think that this is fluffy psychology, you know, lie on the couch and tell me about your mother. This is... <laughs> There, you know, if you run an FR, if if you run an fMRI on people's brains, you can see the changes in the brain as we do these things and how slow the brain is to switch tasks. So this is all about creating cognitive techniques to assist the speed with which our brain switches tasks. So it's all you know quite based in hard science rather than soft science. It's interesting while we're on the topic of kind of these protective factors that that uh, um we're trying to implement to to improve our mental health. I've noticed, and I was speaking to Will about this, that, that sometimes the conversation around mental health, particularly in a corporate setting, which is I think has certainly ramped up at least publicly in the last uh, 18 months or so, uh, which is a great thing, but it, it has sped up quite significantly. And I've noticed that the, the conversation can sometimes conflate well-being, so 
mindfulness and meditation and and then perhaps m- some of the more extreme side of the of of uh, the conversation can be about mental illness and mental ill health. And I suppose an example of that is, you know, having a meditation morning or a yoga exercise, but then um, providing the number to Beyond Blue or Lifeline. And have you noticed that, 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 that perhaps because this conversation is just starting, we're, we're slowly navigating the nuance and the big grey area in between those two things? Yes, to some degree. And it's, it's hard because when you when you start to introduce this and what we're trying to do is get as much traction in as many different domains as is possible, you don't want to exclude or segregate because then people might start to go, oh, well, you know, I can go with that bit of well-being but not this bit. We want people to think mm-hmm. about holistic mental health and well-being as a spectrum, as a continuum because that's what it is. So it can be a bit jarring for people um, if you sort of go with you know, a soft well-being piece like meditation and then go, and if you're really struggling, here's the number for, you know, lifeline. Um, I tend not to do that. If I'm talking about a heavy topic, I'll share that. If I'm talking about a lighter topic, I'll talk about more proactive mental health options like the coaching service provided by our EAP provider. So it's all about trying to match it to who your audience is. But also I don't want people to think that going to a meditation session is going to fix your anxiety or depression. It might manage some of the symptoms, but, you know, you sort of need to do some deeper work to actually deal with what's going on there. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. It's great to hear your insight on, on kind of the transition as we move into more nuanced conversations. And I suppose on that note, the way that people access these services and, and the way that they speak about mental health generally, anecdotally, I've noticed a that the younger generations uh, particularly are, are increasingly literate in this space. Um, are there trends that you see in your practice and is this encouraging for you uh, as a, a younger generation of lawyers uh, move through the ranks? Absolutely. It makes my job a lot easier having a, a younger generation who are very mental health literate. If you go back 20, 30, 40 years, the idea of people starting their career in law, being willing to open up and talk about, oh, you know, yeah, I sort of live with anxiety or depression, wouldn't happen. And if you did share that, you would then get selected out of your chosen job path because you can't hack it. We're now now moved into a position where sharing something like that is kind of just a matter of fact. You know, we know by the stats that 50% of us are going to experience mental illness at some point in our life. We can't just select out half the population. And we know that's a higher rate for lawyers. So our younger people are definitely better at that. Women as well are much more mental health literate than men. That gap is closing as the newer generations come through, but it's still definitely there. I think it's really interesting. I mean, even, you know, my career only really starting in the last couple of years, you've seen really small linguistic changes. You know, I think that a lot of people used to view things like mental health days as kind of like chucking a sickie, which is now kind of moved into a more, you know, like very reasonable use of sick leave or use of personal leave. Um, I know seeing like, you know, younger friends and their younger siblings talking about, you know, like mental health challenges, seeing a psych as things that are very normal things to talk about. So I think those changes are really encouraging. I'm also really interested, Greg, in, you know, the legal industry does have a reputation as being quite traditional and and, uh, being quite hierarchical. And you mentioned that sometimes uh, older generations might be less 
literate in these things or maybe just have less access to, you know, these conversations. Have, are there any strategies you use to try and get, you know, your message across to old generations to use different techniques or how do you kind of address that um, literacy gap? I guess there's a couple of or several pronged approach there. As I mentioned before, I do run weekly wellbeing sessions with the leadership team. And when I talk about wellbeing there, it's more effective leadership behaviors for managing wellbeing. So it's training them on how to recognize when someone might be struggling with their mental health, how to have a conversation with an employee who is struggling. It's these basic skills that are one of the reasons why leaders are reluctant to have the conversation as well as just being so busy that I can't quite open that up yet. So it's about giving them the skills and also explaining to them the very basic reasons of why it's a good idea that, you know, asking someone if they're okay doesn't make things worse. In fact, it actually gives you opportunity to nip things in the bud before they become serious. And in terms of practical terms, the ROI of having those conversations and being proactive about your team's well-being means you reduce sick leave, you increase productivity, you increase team cohesion, you reduce turnover. It is good from a business point of view as well as a team well-being point of view. So I tend to sort of choose a bit of a scattergun approach and make sure that every leader can find a hook or a reason why they should care about what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I think the ways to cut through are really interesting and different people obviously respond to different sort of incentives. And even just personally, you know, conversations with parents and friends' parents, you know, it sometimes it's just modeling what that conversation looks like. Like they don't may, may not quite literally know the words to use or what to say. So I, you know, I've attended some of your weekly wellbeing sessions. I think they're great. Um, and they're really just very practical and, and useful for people to see how those conversations are supposed to happen. And I'm, I'm also quite interested in, uh, you know, what you think moving forward, uh, what the legal industry needs to focus on. So I, I know you've spent quite a lot of time working with legal professionals now. Are there particular areas you would like to see change in something like the next, you know, five, 10 years? Or are there things that uh, you think, you know, things could be improved in this industry or, you know, things that you want to focus on? Yeah, I mean, the number one, the, the biggest thing to be addressed, and but also the most challenging, is to look at the billable hours model. That's um, it, it's something which is across the entire legal industry and and most professional services. Um, it's kind of the way that things have always been done, but it's also something that often drives people towards achieving huge targets. And as I talked about before, when you've got high achieving perfectionists, if you set the, if you set me a target and a stretch target, I don't see hitting my target as success. I see my stretch target as what I need to achieve for success. And I can say that because I also have those high achieving tendencies. You know, going through uni, the idea of getting a pass or a credit was just, you know, that, that would be a fail in my own mind. So we need to look at the kinds of people we're employing and what the structure, the reward structure and the performance structure we're putting around them, how those two things interact to create a drive towards people working unsustainable hours. Now, that's a really easy thing for me to say, coming in as an outsider, having been here for six months and trying to basically shake up the entire core of the industry. <laughs> if, you me, if you could give me one goal for the long term, that's something I would like looked at to go, what can we change? Maybe we don't need to tear it all down and rebuild from scratch. 
but what buffers can we put in place? What parameters to protect our employees? Yeah, it's interesting, Greg, that you you raise the the billable model, which is obviously widespread, as you say, not not just in law but in other professional services industries. And for those law students listening, I'm sure many of you will understand. But effectively, when we talk about the billable model, we're we're talking about a, a way that that firms will will bill for advice, in our case, legal advice, and uh, often with that can come you know certain targets for legal operatives. And there is an element of subjectivity sometimes if you have the right, uh, I suppose, if you have a good attitude about it and if, if, if the people around you and the lawyers around you uh, also share that same view, then billable time needn't be the be all and end all. Um, but it's a really interesting conversation to have because different firms do it differently, different teams do it differently. And as you say, Greg, an individual's perception of what those what those numbers really mean um, can be the difference between having a very healthy attitude uh, towards work and and probably more more broadly a, a sense of well being and not um, so that's fascinating that you that you bring that up and and I'm certainly going to be watching that very closely as well as I'm sure most lawyers will to see uh, how that evolves um, and where it goes. Yeah, I, I have the same view in that. I, I think there are, you know, institutional challenges around billable targets, but some of it is discursive in the way you talk about it. And those things seem easier to, to, you know, change yourself, right? Like, you know, we were talking the other day amongst some of the graduate lawyers about how it's obviously normal that there are periods of peaks and troughs in your workload. And all of us were recounting experiences of how when we, you know, worked really hard one week and then didn't have, you know, that much to do the next week because that's, you know, how work naturally is allocated. Like you don't have a constant tap that you turn on. Um, a lot of us felt like, oh, you know, like internally, like worried, like, oh, I should be doing more or, you know, whatever. And we were kind of reminded that it is very normal to not have work to do every minute of the day and it's fine to take breaks. Um, and it is going to be a really interesting challenge to see how to break out of those, you know, perfectionistic tendencies when you've spent, you know, years in high school studying really hard to try and get into an industry like law. And then you spent years in law school, which has its own, you know, like nuances and difficulties. So I think it is really interesting that a lot of, you know, the associated problems with that billable target or, you know, workload are small discursive things that hopefully are starting to break down and change. But I, I agree that it's really interesting to see how it's already changing and, and what's going to happen in, you know, the next decade and, and onwards. Hmm. And the biggest, the biggest single piece of advice I would give to new lawyers is check your expectations with your performance coach, your peers, your partner, just to make sure that you're not heaping additional expectations on yourself on top of your already high expectations of the firm. You don't want to be adding to that pile. Make sure that your expectations are in line with the external expectations. Greg, I'm interested to know, are there any big misconceptions that you come across in your work about mental illness or, or, or well-being or otherwise that you wish you could kind of dispel forever? And that can be absolutely anything. Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> Probably the number one, which, which is definitely being broken down, but people still think, is that someone who has experienced or is currently experiencing any kind of mental illness is incapable of work or is less capable. Um, 
And one of the great examples I like is if someone has biological depression, so a depressive disorder where throughout their entire life through a neurochemical imbalance, they're kind of going to have low-level depression. I always like to compare that to someone who is type 1 diabetic. It's almost a perfect comparison because if both of those are effectively managed with medication and lifestyle, then the impact on life and work should be fairly minimal. And I would really encourage people to think of mental illness with a parallel to the way that you would think of physical illness. Like if during lockdown someone started to experience anxiety or depression, that's a situational effect of us being put through an undue amount of stress. No different to if you decide to go on a 20-kilometer hike tomorrow without any preparation, you're at elevated risk of maybe twisting your ankle or doing an ACL or something like that. It's an injury related to the situation you're in and it just needs some rehab physio in the case of your knee or your ankle or therapy in the case of depression or anxiety and there's no reason why you shouldn't return to full functioning after that so i like to make those comparisons because anyone who says oh it's all in your head well yeah in the same way that asthma is all in your lungs <laughs> i mean you know, our brain's just an organ like any other that's a that's a fantastic analogy i'm definitely going to have to steal that i like how far it went you know, for the for the the ACL, the twenty kilometer hike, I, I've heard it before, just in the term of like, you know, if you got sick, if you broke your leg, you'd go to the doctor. But I like how far that truly can go, and it's really it's it, it's correct what you say. A little bit of rehab, in the same way that a minor physical injury can be compared to a brief spell of mental ill health, and and it, you know, it, they certainly are. Um, they can be treated the same, and we just need to get better at doing that. So, Greg, we like to finish with advice for, for people at home that might be listening. Uh, I know you've already given us a very good word of advice for those starting their career being to check in with those instructing you and performance coaches to make sure that your expectations are the same as theirs. Is there any other advice that you would have for law students or any other lawyers that you think would be beneficial to hear when you're just starting out? Go out there, engage with a psychologist and get some proactive strategies in place before it becomes a problem. So first piece of advice, access support and access early. And second of all would probably be try to find balance regardless of how busy things are. Make time for the things that are important to you. Work will always be there. It's always going to take up a large amount of your time, but be careful what you're cancelling and putting off in order to facilitate work because a lot of the time we put off the things that are best for us. We, we don't go to the gym because we're tired. We skip the catch up with friends because I'm too busy. But those things are core to our well-being and they actually enable us to work harder for longer and maintain focus. So, you know, going to the gym or going out with friends is not a luxury, it's essential. Yeah, I, the, the advice about seeking out support before it becomes a really big problem can seem counterintuitive because I feel like I've had this exact problem and I feel like it's it sounds like going to the doctor when you're not sick. But I, I feel like, you know, when you get into a period of really struggling with your mental health, it's the time where you least want to go through the administrative, you know, process of finding someone to see and setting up the appointment and whatever. So people at home do it makes it so much easier later on mm. um, and the, com but the comparison i would make is if you look at every successful sports team in the world they all have a performance psychologist attached to them and it's not there for when their athletes break down and struggle with their mental health it's to make sure that they are performing at their peak 
Yeah, there you go. Performance peak is is associated with preventative mental health measures. I think we need to get that into our heads sooner rather than later. That might be all we have time for today, sadly. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I know I've learned heaps. Uh, Caitlin, I'm sure you're the same. And to all our listeners at home, I'm, I hope you found this useful. Um, thanks very much, Greg, for all of your time time uh your advice i'm sure will be taken uh you know very seriously and and i hope that uh people are starting to have these important conversations more and more and um thank you for all of your work in in helping those conversations happen so uh thanks very much to all our listeners we hope you join us again next time <laughs>